Welcome to our gathering today. Thank you for being with us. Uh, and so as we settle in, let's go ahead and open uh, in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 today. Uh, we're going to finish Colossians 1. And, and as we do that, uh, I want to, I, I just want to do two things. First, uh, and this is something we do from time to time. Uh, if you've been with us long enough, you've probably heard uh, this or something similar. Uh, but the first thing I want to do is I just want to quickly remind us why we gather. So we as a church believe that the gathering is a time where we can come together. No, no matter what's happened during our week, uh, man, we get to come together to be refreshed, to be reformed, and, and be refocused by the good news of the gospel. With the purpose that as we glorify God, as we uh, behold this good news and allow it to uh, man reshape our hearts, refocus our hearts and, and bring transformation, that then we would leave living here, leave here living lives that are centered upon the very good news that we come to celebrate, right? So, so something that's kind of common, I think, in culture, just in our lives, is at times we uh, allow the week uh, to to uh, bring about our Sunday. We allow the Sunday to kind of influence our... Uh, we allow the, the week to kind of influence our Sunday when really Sunday is meant to be a time that pushes us out into the week, right? So as we come in here and we celebrate that, uh, man, no matter what's going on, no matter the circumstance, we can praise a risen and reigning Savior. And as we do that, and as we, uh, man, hear God's Word, as we sing in worship, and we are in power. We are reminded that, man, one, we're not in it alone. If you look around the room today, you are not in it alone. But you are then called and commissioned to leave and go out into your week and live for the glory of God. So we gather and then we are a people. And you'll hear this even at the end of the day today. That you are then sent out. You are a sent one of God. And then secondly, I just want to remind us where we have been so far in Colossians, just really quickly over the last couple of weeks. So uh, our time in this letter is really being spent looking uh, really to answer the question or the statement that's kind of the theme of this series, Christ is. And from the start, I shared that the way we answer that question, the way we fill in that blank, Christ is, you fill in the blank, man, it tells us a lot about how we view the gospel, but also... It tells us a lot about how we live or are to live in light of the gospel. And so my prayer for this series is that we would grow in our understanding of who Christ truly is, what He has done, and how His sovereign sufficiency, which is seen in His life, death, and resurrection, both informs but also empowers the whole of our lives. That's exactly what we saw last week. Jeremy jumped into last week by looking at the next part of Colossians 1 where he talked about the preeminence of Christ. You see, the argument of the false teachers that have gone into Colossae and the argument really, because again, nothing's new under the sun, the argument that's still being presented is that um, there are many other things that point to the reality and the fulfillment of life. Are there not? There are many things that are trying to say, hey, this is how you live a full. And a question that was asked to me this morning as we prepare, what does it look like to live a life that is flourishing, right? So there's a lot of answers out there, but there's only one answer that's true and good news, right? 
And so we see that around us. And this is what the people are wrestling with in Colossae. Uh, but while they're pointing to many other things, what Paul does from the get-go is he says, and you all saw it last week, that Jesus is what? Jesus is the goat, right? Which I love, right? Like he's the greatest of all time. The other thing I loved about that is that, man, you know, Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player of all time. And so we just want to get that out there. That's another avenue of discipleship uh, that we just want to lay out there and just kind of say, hey, here it is. Uh, and so uh, we, we, you know, you saw that last week, but uh, the way that that was presented in the text uh, was really in three, the form of three truths, right? So truth number one is that Jesus is fully God and fully man, both in presence and position. He is first. He is supreme over all things. The second truth is that Jesus is the Lord over redemption. So He is the one who redeems, but also He is connected. He's not, he, he doesn't redeem and then just pull Himself back and say good luck. No, He is connected to the church. We see in Scripture that He is the head of the body. And then lastly, the third truth was that only Jesus can change lives and bring hope. He is the only one that can do that. And so we saw how He does that. And for you, we could sit around, if you're a follower of Jesus, we could sit around and I could talk, hey, how has Jesus transformed your life? I could maybe ask other people around, hey, how are you seeing Jesus transform uh, their life? And we would be encouraged by what God is doing because not only did He do it, He is continuing to do it and we are called to continue to testify to what He's doing. Paul laid out these identity statements to kind of uh, share kind of what that looks like. He said, man, you were once alienated. You were once hostile, meaning you were a, an enemy. You were at war with God, but now you've been reconciled and you were holy and blameless. Now you have hope. And so it's from these foundational truths that Paul continues really just kind of building upon this argument today by way of what he does. And I think it's a really amazing picture of Paul just kind of expressing his own heart. Not simply for Christ, but for the church in the text today. And so let's begin. We're going to read. I'm going to read the uh, uh, verses 24 through 29. It'll take us to the end of the chapter. And that's where we're going to kind of sit today. Paul says this, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Okay, so Paul 
uh, following kind of his introduction of Jesus' supremacy. He, he shares with us uh, really three things about his relationship to the church in Colossae. Really his relationship to uh, man, the church right in the known world and, and what God has commissioned him to do. In, as a result of him being called into relationship with Christ. And so uh, we're going to see kind of three things today. I'm going to get real Baptist. Uh, we are going to see Paul display this. It's even going to go further. They're all P's, okay? Uh, he sees it in his posture. We see it in his position, but also we see it in his purpose today. And so let's begin with Paul's posture in verse 24. What we see is that Paul presents this posture as one who what? As one who suffers. I don't know about you, but man, as I read that and just think if that's the posture of Paul as one who suffers, man, there's already, it may not be red lights or, you know, going off in my head, but it's some yellow lights cautioning me to like, hey, what does this mean for my life, right? If Paul's posture is one of a sufferer, what does it mean for my life? But Paul states, he says, I rejoice, verse 24, in the midst of all that he suffers for the sake of those to whom he is writing. Which again is really key, and because we, we've talked about this. Paul, he, he never went to Colossae, right? Uh, other than Epaphras, he doesn't have any real connection. And, said, and yet he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. You see, while his posture of suffering reaches further, and he specifically he's saying, no, it's for you guys. You see, what's described here is, is really a willingness to suffer for the good of others. That's what Paul means when he says, man, I, I'm suffering for you. He said, man, I'm suffering for your good. And, and the reason that he can do that is because, man, that's what Christ modeled. Man, Jesus modeled a willingness to suffer due to his love for us. Even as he wrestled with it, right? He says, God, not my will. Like I, he, he, I'm willing to go there. But, but again, like in, in the posture, like note uh, how he's receiving this posture. He says with rejoicing, right? Which again is like, wait a second, like if I'm all right, like the yellow lights are starting to turn to red because you're saying, no, I'm supposed to suffer. But also Paul is rejoicing in this. Why? You see, I think it's here in the midst of the suffering that as we sit in the reality of rejoicing, we struggle here. Because guess what? I don't know if you're like me, but I want comfort. Right? I want the air conditioning to be set at a certain point. Right? Like, I only want to drink sweet tea, like, without a straw, because, like, it's the coldest then, and that's comfortable to me, and I like that. And, like, we all have these avenues where, like, we, we prefer comfort, right? We, I, I don't like suffering. I actually seek to run from it and avoid it most of the time. You see, we want comfort. I even think that we're, man, if we're honest, at times we, we just want others to suffer rather than us, right? You know, like you ever uh, seen videos like somebody, they're walking through somewhere and they get scared and they just push the person in front of them and they take off. They're like, no, you suffer, I'm gone, right? I'm out of here. 
You see, we're light on a willingness to be made to suffer or even to be discomforted for others. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Really, if you read the New Testament, man, the New Testament is filled with these moments of rejoicing that they would be counted worthy to suffer. Like it blows my like you read the book of Acts and like over and over again I'm like no wonder everybody thought Christians were just crazy, right? Because they're being beaten and yet they're they're in prison. What are they doing? They're just singing worship songs, right? Like, you know, like in Christ alone, right? Like that's as far as I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna sing anymore. But like they're seeing it, like they're rejoicing in the midst of it because they like something so radical has happened to them. Something so life-changing is happening that they don't care what happens to them. Because they know that victory has been won. They rejoice because they counted themselves worthy to suffer. Like, and again, it goes back to the picture of Jesus. I love Hebrews 12. It says what? It says, for the joy set before Him, what did He do? He willingly went to the cross. He knew He was going to die. Jesus went knowing. Not only did He go knowing, like, no one takes His life. What? He lays His life down. Willingly. And guess what? Paul knew what he was walking into. In Acts chapter 9, uh, you, you get the story of Paul's conversion. And uh, it's this really crazy story, like he's on the road to Damascus, he's blinded, you know, and what God says is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, right? Which we're going to talk about here in a second. But Paul's pers- Saul's persecuting the church, uh, and so he's blinded, and, and God goes to Ananias and says, hey, Ananias, I want you to go to this guy Saul, and you're going to uh, proclaim this to him, you're going to talk to him, and he's going to come to, and, and Ananias like, wait, 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 I know this guy. He's throwing my buddies in prison. He, he's killing people. Uh, he's killing these Christians. Like, we're in high. Like, uh, you want me to go to who? And Jesus' response is, no, go to him. And then he, he says, he says, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. But then we get the, mean, he, the, the means by which that's going to take place in verse 16 of chapter 9. God says this, He says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Again, like you look at the stories of Acts. Like you look at Paul. Like There's a story in Acts where Paul gets beaten and they think he's dead. <laughs> he's beaten as he's like, And the next day he gets up. Right? They leave him outside the city. He gets up. And, and you know, for us, like we say, well, I'm done with that suffering. Let's dust myself off. And go to the next place. No, he walks back into the city and proclaims the gospel even more. He knew what he was getting into. He rejoiced in the suffering because guess what? Something so radical had happened to him. The gospel had so changed his life. that he said, no, I'll allow that to be my posture too. And so again, something we must wrestle with here is the reality of suffering. For while Jesus willingly suffered in our place and Paul was made to suffer for the sake of the Gospel being made known to the Gentiles, guess what? Like 
why would we think our lives any different? And Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble, but what? Take heart, I've overcome the world. Like why? Like why do we think, well, that's okay for them, but not for not for Kyle, Brent, Ogle. Right? Like, no, or, or Jesus, let me just suffer a little bit, but I'm going to draw the line here. But why would we think ourselves any different? Well, I think the reality is, is that we just, I don't think we fully grasp how comfortable and how good we have it. Like, you go to Iran and talk about suffering in terms of Christians. You go, to, like, go to other parts of the world, right? And see what they're dealing with. It'll give you some perspective. Man, we've got it really good. Most of the time, we just have some, some little things that kind of get in our way and we just call that huge suffering. It's not. You see, we just, again, want others to suffer for the sake of us or for others to suffer even for the sake of their own sin while we step back and say, not me. Not me. We do that instead of stepping in for their sake, even if that means sharing and suffering so that we might, what? So that we might proclaim the Gospel. You see, this is Paul's reason for rejoicing. And guess what he says? He says, the reason I'm rejoicing in it is because I'm proclaiming it. And man, it's for the sake of the church. He's suffering for the sake of making Christ known. And so why does Paul rejoice in suffering at the end of verse 24? Well, the answer, and again, this is one of those answers that seems a bit odd, and maybe as you look at it, a little heretical, because at first glance, he says, the reason I'm suffering is so that I might fill up what's, a lack, what's lacking in Christ's affliction. Now that actually would seem to go against all three of the truth points that we looked at last week. But in this response, actually Paul's doing two things. First, he is still standing on the truth that Jesus is the goat. All those three truths, he's still standing on them. He hasn't say, okay, I talked about that, now let me tell you where Jesus kind of missed it, which is what the false teachers were saying. You actually need a little bit more knowledge. You need a little bit of something else if you're going to find fulfillment. Now what he's referring to here is that all suffering for the sake of Christ points to the truth that Christ is sufficient and is ever present with Him in His suffering. You see, ultimately they are Christ's sufferings because guess what? He is what? He's head of the body. He is head of the body. That's why whenever he confronts Saul, he says, "Why not why are you persecuting all those people? He says, why are you per- persecuting me? He felt it. But in the midst of that, like, I think those two things, like, they should lead us to rejoice. Like, to know that Christ is with you in the midst of suffering, you can rejoice. Like, you can rejoice when you know that you're not alone. That Christ is with you. You see, verse 24 is to be a mark of our lives. And the reason I argue is that is for the same reason. Uh, it's the same reason that we love to read stories of missionaries who did amazing work for the kingdom of God. 
You see, when you read about uh, man, missionaries and people that go over, and we read that they suffer greatly. And guess what? Over and over and over again in those stories, they rejoice greatly in the midst of their suffering. Like if, you, if you've never read, like go read the end of the spear. Elizabeth Elliot's story of Jim Elliot, right? Go read what happens. Go read the hiding place about Corey Ten Boom in World War II and the things that they did and the things that they suffered. One of my favorites is a book called Bruchko. Man, an amazing picture of God's work in the midst of suffering. You see, when you read those stories, you see the truth of what Paul is saying. But guess what? That's not for just a few. We are all called into lives of proclamation that at times will lead to suffering. Jesus said, man, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross. Follow, right? The cross is a tool of death, but it's also, man, it, it, it inflicts suffering. I think, man, we got to, like, eyes wide open going in. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Now, there are varying degrees of that, yes. And what I'll say is don't seek out suffering, but live in such a way for the kingdom of God that when it does come, you can rejoice in it knowing that Christ is with you and that He's using it for the sake of the gospel being made known to others. Therefore, suffer well, rejoice in Christ, and proclaim the gospel in the midst of it all for the sake of those around you. And so we see his posture, which leads to the second part of his relationship with the church in verses 25 through 27, where Paul lays out his position. And he states that in light of the suffering that is for the sake of the church, which uh, specifically he, he was called to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul, he says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship that had been given to him by God. And so what was this ministry of suffering and proclamation? Well, what was the goal of it? Well, if you look at the text, the goal was, he says, I'm gonna, the goal is to preach the word fully. The literal translation is to lay out the word of God, like just lay it bare, just lay it out fully. See, Paul was called by God to preach the word of God so that understanding might come. But again, what is it that needs to be understood? Well, what Paul then says, it leads into the content of his preaching of the Word of God, which he says, man, I get to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel that brought about the salvation of not only the Jews, but it brought Gentiles and it brought them into one family. You see, for us, like if you've been in church, like you just you may have heard that a lot, but man, for those two in Paul's writing, those in this time, like, that blew their mind. They, they, they didn't think that could happen. Actually, man, it, it was such a hard pill to swallow because Jews and Gentiles, actually, they didn't want it to happen. They despised one another. I'm not going to get into everything, but man, uh, Jew and Gentiles, that was the original cancel culture, okay? Like that was the OG cancel culture. Like they did everything they could to separate themselves from one another. So much so like uh, Jews, like when they would pray, they would pray out loud that God wouldn't save Gentiles. Like out loud, right? That would be like you going outside and yelling your neighbor's name and being like, God, pour down the wrath on them. I, I can't stand them. Get them. Like that, like, 
And so you have that on one side, but the Gentiles, like, they didn't like the Jews either. And so there's stories of them actually breaking into the temple and, like, spreading pig blood everywhere to, like, defile things. Like, they, because they were like, no, we're going to get you back. And yet Paul has been called by God to proclaim the mystery that Christ, who again is the Lord of redemption and is the only one who can change lives and bring hope, that He gets this opportunity and this position to proclaim that God is reconciling both Jew and Gentile unto Himself. The dividing wall was torn down when Jesus breathed His last. Right? So that the nations might come in. And guess what? Like That's good news for all of us because I, I may be wrong, but I, there's no one that's like a, a, an ethnic Jew in here today. We're all probably Gentiles. And so that's good news. That that would happen. And again, while that was probably hard to believe, man, that was what Jesus, again, commissioned his followers to do in Matthew 28, right? We talked about it a few weeks back on Easter. Jesus says, Go and what? Make disciples. But he doesn't say make disciples of just the people that look like you and that act like you and that hold the same values as you and have cleaned themselves up enough in certain ways and wear certain clothes and like certain sports teams like the Cowboys and, you know, whatever. Like, you don't... Uh, he, he says, no. Like, you make disciples of what? All nations. Which again, nations is all ethnicities. Jew and Gentile. Why? Chapter 1 of Colossians. You were once dead. You were once alienated. You were hostile. And yet you were brought in. Oh, how quick we are to forget how dead we once were. And when we do that, I think that what that shows is that we have, man, we, we have a little view of grace and, and we have a whole lot of pride. Like I, I see this in my... You know, my like I'm around kids all the time, so I see this in my children, right? Like my oldest, who's not that old, she'll look at her younger siblings and just be like, "Can you believe?" Like she'll look at Haley, "Can you believe that they're doing that?" Like really, I'm like, "Can you believe that they can't?" You know, whatever it is, you know, like the most meaningless task. And I'm looking, I'm like, "You didn't do it yesterday, right?" Like you, like. Yesterday I was telling you that, and that today you're like, look at them. Get them, <laughs> right? But man, for me personally, like, I, guess what? Like, there's something that wars inside me that wants to have a whole lot of pride about who I am and, and, and a whole lot of judgment about who other people are. And guess what? I lose my keys 47 times a week. Like, multiple times a day, I'm like, hey, where are my keys at? I don't know. Where are my keys at? And I'll tell myself when I set them down, I'm like, keys are here, Kyle. And I'll walk up, I don't know where they are. They're gone. Two weeks ago, I frantically came home before the gathering. It was rifling through everything, and the kids were trying to talk to me, and I'm like, get away from me, children. i got to find my wallet. I don't know where it is. It was at H-E-B. Right? But, like, guess what? Guess what went through my head? Kids took my wallet, hid it from me, right? And when I find it, I'm going to get them, right? We 
are so quick to forget how dead we once were. So we see Matthew in verse, chapter 28, what he transitions to is what Paul is talking about in this text. For as disciples are made, they are to be taught what? All that was commanded. You see, Paul here as a minister of the Gospel holds the Great Commission mandate which is to make disciples who understand the Word of God fully. You see, this is what was taking place in Colossae. And guess what? The calling is still the same today. We who have been reconciled are to be what? Ministers of reconciliation. We are to go out and proclaim that, man, God takes enemies and He makes them friends. God takes orphans and He adopts them in. I was one of them. God brings the dead and He makes them alive. You see, we are called to call people to Christ even through suffering for the sake of the Word being proclaimed fully. And we are, called, we are all called into that. While yes, Jeremy and I may be preachers of the Word up here, We are all, and again I want to say it so we hear it, we are all called to preach and proclaim the resurrection and reconciling power of the Gospel to the world around us. Again, each week when we get done, we say, you are sent. What are you waiting for? So we see the posture. We see Paul's position. Let's close out with the third P. We see Paul's purpose. We've seen a little bit of his purpose in his position. But if you look at 28 and 29, we see that Paul's purpose, he says, our purpose is to proclaim Christ. That's it. Proclaim Christ. Proclaim Him as the beginning, the middle, and the end. So today, if you want an application to leave with, proclaim Christ. Give people Jesus. That's what they need. They don't need seven steps to be a better whatever. They need Jesus. And if you want to know how, look at the text. He says, man, we warn everyone, we teach everyone so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says this, but I love that the goal of all this is at the end of verse 28, that the purpose of Paul's proclamation of Christ was so that people might be mature, complete, and full grown. Which again is just a knock against what the false teachers are saying. They're saying, hey, you're going to have to go somewhere other than Jesus to be who you think you need to be. And Paul says, nope. We proclaim Christ and He's enough. He's sufficient. So today, like something to note is, man, as you think, and this works out in every aspect of life, I believe. The greatest thing you can do The greatest thing that you can transfer, and let's just begin here, the greatest thing you can transfer to your children is not a good work ethic, although, man, we want our kids to have a good work ethic. The greatest thing you you, you could transfer to your children is not uh, that they would have good manners, right? Although we want our kids to have good manners. I actually, like, that's what I prided myself in as a kid. Realized this a couple of months ago, is that, man, I, like, I wanted to have the best manners, and I wanted people to tell me I had the best manners. And I believe, like, and I think I did. Like I was, as Paul would say, I was zealous, not for the Lord, for manners. Right? Like I was zealous for it. But man, I was walking in a whole lot of debauchery. And the greatest thing you can transfer to your kid is not athletic giftings. 
Man, if your ultimate goal for your kid is for them to be the next Derek Jeter, I'm sorry, that's not the goal. They're probably not going to be Derek Jeter. They may be good, but that's not the goal, no matter how good they are. The goal is not to present them as uh, these super smart, educated beings, although we want our kids to be smart and we want to hold them to a standard of education, right? But at the end of the day, it's not a goal. The greatest thing that you can give your children, or really anyone, is the proclamation of Christ, praying that they would be mature, complete, and full-grown, gospel-centered, kingdom-minded followers of Jesus. The greatest thing you can transfer or reveal to your spouse is that you would proclaim Christ to them. Now that works out in word and in deed. But we're to proclaim Christ to one another. The greatest thing you can do for your neighbor is not have the most manicured lawn and the, you know, the, the, the greatest you know, uh, holiday parties and things like that. All those are good things. Man, it's to invite them over and to proclaim Christ to them. Even when it's awkward, for your coworker, for your boss, you fill in the blank, proclaim Christ. Paul says that the means by which this took place was in two ways. First, warning. You see, we are to be a people who are not looking to correct for the sake of showing how much smarter we are or how much holier we are, but we are to uh, warn and correct as a means to the end of, so that people might be mature in Christ. And guess what? We get it wrong sometimes, so we've got to be corrected. That means being bold enough to share where they miss it, because guess what? We all miss it at times. All followers of Jesus believe in faith, but at times we struggle, right, with unbelief. And we need help with our unbelief. And we need the Spirit to correct that, but God, He's also given us the church. We need one another. And so do you have that in your life? Do you have people in your life that are willing to call you out? And if not, ask yourself, why not? Is it because you're not in community? Or is it because you're not posturing in a way that you can receive correction? You see, community as a distance void of connection or correction is a poor community. We need sharpening. One thing I will say to that is that doesn't give you license to going around just correcting everybody in judgment and just saying, well, I'm just telling them the truth. This is where you're wrong. You're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. No, that's judgment, right? Like that's, No, what I mean by correction is going to them in love and saying, hey, I think you're missing it here. I love you enough. I want to tell you. But also, guess what? I'm willing to get in the trenches with you. That's what Jesus did, right? He entered into the mess. And then we see teaching. It's not just warning where one has missed it, but teaching what the Word actually means. You see, we need a balance of both so that we might grow into maturity. As followers of Jesus, we are to be lifelong learners, which also means that we never grow out of needing to learn. You never outgrow your need for the Gospel and your need to understand the Gospel. Guess what? God is incomprehensible. For all eternity we will be, and man, it will be this, I, I can't fully comprehend it, but it will be this glorious thing where all the time we'll be learning more about the fullness of who God is, and we will rejoice and rejoice and rejoice in that grace. 
We are to be ever deepening in our knowledge of the Word of God and what it means to live in light of it. You never outgrow the need to learn more about God's Word. But to learn more, you must be in God's Word, right? And to be in it, you must learn how to hold it rightly, or guess what? You're going to get janky with it, right? Like, you're going to just start going off and chasing some things. Which is a perfect plug for next Sunday. We're having a reading the Bible class, so sign up for that. Free meal and child care. And we're going to give you some tools to equip you to better understand how to read your Bible. So why do we do these things? Well, I believe what Paul is expressing is because teaching, warning, and maturity in Christ is according to Paul for everyone. He says, man, we do this for everyone. Because guess what? Paul says the reason I do this is because the gospel is for everyone. It's the reason for Paul's suffering, but it's also the reason for his rejoicing. He longs to see fully formed disciples who are proclaiming and discipling others in the fullness of God's Word. Which is why he closes out the chapter. He says, look, this is why I toil. This is why I struggle. The the words for that is like, he's running a race. I mean, he's worn out at the end of it. He's being wrung out and poured out for this. But look, look at what he says. He says, I'm not, he's not doing it in his strength. He says, I'm doing it in Christ who gives me actually the strength to do it. This is to be the model for us. We are to toil and to struggle in the strength of Christ, being wrung out for the sake of the kingdom. Our call is to be the same as Paul's, for we are all to proclaim through every means the hope of Christ. So that means that you have a part to play. It's not just the few so-called gifted, but we are all to be brought to maturity and in maturity humbly lead others. And so today, what's your posture look like? Are you willing to be stretched or even made to suffer for the sake of Christ? See, the posture of us all, every follower of Jesus, the posture is to pick up the cross and die, to, to, to wash the feet of others. And man, today will you rejoice through it all for the sake of the Gospel? Today, what's your position? Are you ready and willing to take up your position as a disciple of Jesus who proclaims the mystery of the Gospel to those you were around, even if it costs, even if it means seeing your enemy saved? Again, remember who you were. Don't be so quick to forget how dead you once were. And then what's your purpose today? Are you ready to join the call that we've been given as a church to proclaim the gospel to everyone? Teaching, toiling, and giving all of self so that others might know and experience the hope that you've received. That's what we're after. That's what we're called to. And it's going to take every single one of us. And so that's what I want to encourage you towards today. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And man, I want us just to take some time to reflect on, man, what's your posture today? What, what, what's your position? Where, where is your heart? Do you realize the purpose you've been called to? Maybe today, even in the midst of that, you realize, like, man, I'm still dead. I have no life. 
and come to Jesus today. Cry out to Him who gives life. Maybe we begin to wrestle with what does it look like for me to proclaim Christ? And then I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you today to share in communion. The reason we share in communion every week is because it's a reminder of who Jesus is and what He's done. And so today as we share, man, I want you to be reminded of the posture that Jesus took. That He is the suffering servant. He is the model. That He gave His life. That He took the lower position, right? That He, oh, he, he washes feet. That He washes and cleanses hearts. That He gives new life. That He did it not by coming in on a war horse, but on a humble donkey. That you would be reminded of His position that while He took a low position now, He sets in all authority. Ruling and reigning. And everything will be put under His feet. That we remember His purpose. That He came to seek and save the lost. That He came for the sick. The dead. For those without hope. So that we might be healed so that we might have life and so that we might have hope. And so as you share today, you can uh, take and either, either dip in the cup or take uh, a cup with you. Uh, they're both juice. Don't worry. it's nothing. They're, they're not two different things. But you can take that and, go, and be reminded of that. Or even rejoice in that as you share in it. Tell Jesus, Jesus, thank you. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes and then Cade's going to lead us in worship and we're going to sing. But let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You that, that uh, in the midst of, of being called to something, that we can look to You, God, that You have done something so radically life-changing that we have hope even in the midst of hardship even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of being misunderstood, because we can look to You because You experienced all those things and yet You willingly went to the cross. I pray that we would be a people that carry that posture. That we would be people that proclaim You as risen and reigning. As the name above all names, the King above all kings. We would live our lives in such a way that it proclaims it as well so that we might then share that with others. And that we would see our purpose, that we would quit uh, turning to all these other things that are seeking our attention and seeking to get us away to, to other things that we need to do, but we would be about the main thing. Thank You for the hope that we have in You. We give Your name glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.